RCR with Paul Brennan, Reality Check Radio. Here at Reality Check Radio, we like to talk about the news. We like to talk about what's been happening to us the last few years, all of that. But we also want to empower ourselves, you and us, and and work out better ways to, to live, to have a better life, particularly in health. And I want to welcome Dr. Glenn Davies to the program, born in Wellington back in 65, I grew up in a number of small towns, including Munga Kino, graduated from University of Otago in 89. He is in the Topo area, and he's uh, pulled together a group along with others uh, to you know, fight the battle of type 2 diabetes. And we're going to talk about that as well. Uh, Glenn, welcome to Reality Check Radio. Uh, thank you for taking some time to share your knowledge and well, expertise in this area. It's great. Well, thank you for having me, Paul. And um, can I just say congratulations for pulling Reality Check Radio together. Well done. Thank you. I'm just one of many. <laughs> but I'll, I'll take that for the team. That, that, that's, that's really nice of you to say that. And, yeah, you know, it's been quite a ride the last um, almost a month now. Um, so first question, why medicine? Why did you want to be a doctor? You could have been anything. Yeah. Um, it's kind of a cliched answer, Paul, but I really wanted to make a difference and I really wanted to help people. And that, you know, honestly was the motivation. Is that the usual motivation for yes. people who become doctors? Yes, yes, it is. But I think many become a bit disillusioned along the way, but it certainly was my motivation. When you say disillusioned, what, what causes that? Where does that come from? Yeah. Well, that, that's a fantastic question. Um, I think one of the biggest issues that doctors face, that my colleagues face, is time. You know, we're restricted in general practice to this 10 or 15-minute consultation, and it, it just isn't long enough even to say hello to somebody, to greet them properly, let alone to do everything that's expected in a consultation, which is take a detailed history, perform an examination, come up with a diagnosis, uh, discuss treatment options, uh, and then decide on what that program will be. You know, there is no way that you can do that comprehensively in, in 10 or 15 minutes. So what happens, the only thing you have time for is to prescribe a medicine. And sometimes that will be the correct treatment, but the majority of the time, in my humble opinion, is that there's a better option. What do patients want? Because it seems to me they have been educated um, to expect that very short consultation and the drug that I go and get from the chemist and then that sorts that and uh, until the next visit, uh, it's done. Is there, is there a wanting uh, amongst patients to have a more in-depth experience yeah. like you're just describing? Is that something you think they'd prefer? Or is that yes. just sort of like people who are a bit stroppy and like to look after their own interests and, and, and speak up for themselves too much? I think every individual wants to be respected as a person to begin with. Uh, everyone wants to be heard. And I don't think anybody likes being told what to do. You know, people want to be a, a partner in that health journey and Everybody hates being told what to do. So to be given options to work on the client's agenda, you know, that's the kind of stuff that's important. When you came into it, 
Um, I mean, I think graduated 89 or around there. It's a while back now. When you came into it, I mean, you would have been idealistic and young in, in the profession, I would imagine. When did you start to, or, or were you always wondering if, you know, there was a, a, a better way to do things or there were areas of interest that you wanted to pursue to, to find out if, if your gut feel was correct? When did that start? Yeah. Well, when that started, I think it's about sort of six years ago, really, and there was sort of a series of things that happened. At a general practice conference, I listened to Professor Grant Schofield say that diabetes is a reversible disease, and I went, hang on, hang on, hang on, what did this professor just say? You know, I've always thought of type 2 diabetes as this chronic, progressive illness that leads to limb amputation, to blindness, to dialysis, you know, and I and here was somebody saying this is a reversible condition. I went, hang on, hang on, I've got to learn more about this. And then I heard a bariatric surgeon saying that diabetes is reversible with bariatric surgery. I went, wow, this is this. I'm hearing it again from from another angle. But the thing that really tipped it for me was a um, a patient of mine called Wayne. And between clients, he walked into my consulting room and he told me that I was bloody useless. It was about time I read something. And he dumped six books on my on my desk. Uh, one of them was What the Fat by Professor Grant Schofield. Uh, another one was The Diabetes Code by um, Jason Fong. And there were some other books. And I actually did. I sat down and I read these books and I just went, wow, I have been missing so much there is a better way of doing this and it comes down to lifestyle change and particularly nutrition why is that never the first choice or the go-to because that, that's the simple solution isn't it really when you think about it okay it requires a bit of discipline habit changing things like that but people can do that it and, and it's low cost to the system and the taxpayer and eases capacity issues and all those sorts of things less dialysis machines all that sort of stuff. Why is that not the first go-to? Yeah, that's a really complex question. Uh, I don't want to sort of move into the conspiratorial side of things, but I think the pharmaceutical industry has a major control over health. Uh, they, Their primary concern is to return a profit to their shareholder. And I think the influence of the pharmaceutical companies comes all the way down, all the way from the top, you know, so they influence medical journals, what's published, they influence clinical trials, they influence the peer review uh, process, they influence university um, syllabus, uh, they influence how doctors are educated and what they prescribe. So I think if there was one single thing, it's the influence of the pharmaceutical uh, industry over health. So maintaining a business model, really? The business model, most definitely. And unfortunately, there's no money to be made from prescribing a 40-minute walk. There's no money to be <laughs> prescribed in prescribing a clean, healthy diet. And um, even more so, if you look at the idea of a sugar tax, for example, because we know that one of the most poisonous things that people are doing to themselves is the sugar-sweetened beverages, you know, the, um, the Coke, for example. Why don't we put a tax on sugar-sweetened beverages? And then we get into the influence of the sugar industry 
and the influence that it has over politics. And, and I'm not suggesting that's a major thing in New Zealand, but certainly in American politics, that is massive. You know, and, and I think that's why we don't see the rate of change that we would expect to, to change. Something as obvious as stopping children from having soft drinks. Why, why is that not happening? You would think that um, the, the politicians, because they, they make these ultimately these laws and, and the regulations that are ultimately enforced, if someone came to the, you know, the, the Minister of Health or whatever and says, hey, we can save over this period of time this amount of money. It means we don't have to build X amount of new hospitals, yada, yada, yada down the list. Anyone with any common sense would say, okay, let's, let's do this. It's, uh, this is a winner all round, but it never seems to happen. Yeah, well, what I found when something doesn't make sense, it's probably because it doesn't make sense. And I, I definitely think that with, with this particular issue, anyway, there are forces which are not obvious, which are influencing those decisions. Sort of lurking in the shadows somewhere. I suspect so. And Walking corridors. I suspect so. Um, certainly not my area of expertise, but it doesn't make sense to me. Yeah, well, you're at the, the sharp end. You, you see the reality of it. So before we get on to more specific um, matters, um, can you see, uh, obviously, these things change takes time, especially when you've got uh, a really entrenched culture. And how far does this sort of medical system go back? What, about 100 years? Oh, uh, I love I love this history. Let's go back 500 years. Oh, okay. So um, back 500 years ago, Descartes made a deal with the Catholic Church, and he the Catholic Church said, "Leave the mind and the soul to us, and you guys just focus on the body." And you know, medicine is very much um, physically focused, and it goes back that far. And then the next um, really significant event happened in 1907. Uh, that was the Flixner report. And that was the time when we converted from having a whole lot of different schools of medicine. We had osteopathic, chiropractic, naturopathic, um, and the allopathic medicine. The Flixner report basically said the only ones we're going to run with is the allopathic medicine. And most of those other schools of medicine diminished in authority and diminished in size. And it, so it goes back to about 1907 when we've seen that change to uh, the current allopathic um, medical style. And, and what motivated that? It was the motivation to sell more pharmaceutical products. No, so surprise, surprise. <laughs> another, another, actually, I missed the step. If we go back 200 years, um, if we look at Louis Pasteur and, um, and his uh, compatriot, uh, and the name's escaping me, uh, it will come to me. So Pasteur was the germ theory, and his compatriot was the host theory. So germ theory and host theory. So is it the viruses and the bacteria and the fungus that make us sick, or is it the fact that the host is weakened and is unable to resist? You know, and, and that's going back 200 years. However, we've seen it play out very, very recently. Um, you know, that discussion came up to a very small 
extent during the the COVID um, pandemic response. And there are a lot of people saying these comorbid conditions of which diabetes is one, why aren't we getting more exercise? Why aren't we promoting healthy food? Why aren't we suggesting people get more sunshine and vitamin D in the middle of the day? Um, Because that's the host theory. Let's make the host strong and therefore we'll be more resistant to any virus or bacteria. You know, so... Um, that's that's kind of playing out all the time as well. The pharmaceutical industry loves the germ theory because when there's a germ, there's a specific treatment for that. The host theory requires a whole lot of different things. We have to think well, we have to eat well, we have to move, uh, we have to have community and great relationships and we have to do a little bit of mindfulness. You know, there's no money to be made in that, or no obvious money anyway. So I I think you can see how that germ theory is favored and the host theory is is less uh, less marketable perhaps. Yeah, it's really interesting because I was just thinking in um, the other field of medicine, in the sort of uh, psychological field, psychiatric field, there is no separation really of body and mind, is there? Uh, Correct me if I'm wrong, Uh that's kind of accepted. But, well, no, actually, isn't it? Um, I would. The medical, the medicalization of psychiatry has boiled it down to there is a serotonin deficiency, and there are these medicines, Prozac, uh, SSRI medicines, to restore serotonin to normal levels. So we have medicalized even psychiatry. Um, so. Yeah, when you think about that sort of American shrink uh, type idea, then then yes. But what actually happens in reality in your GP clinic is you present with anxiety or depression, you get an SSRI medicine because you can do that in 10 minutes. I was thinking of uh, Bob Newhart, (laughs) the Bob Newhart show. You're lying on the couch and analyze this. Okay, well, well, you've given me the answer on that. So... Let's start talking about diabetes. How big is the diabetes? We call it a problem. Um, I suppose it is a problem. How big is it in New Zealand? And, 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 and what is the impact of that? Yeah, so just before I specifically answer that question, which is an excellent one, let's, um, let's redefine what diabetes is because, you know, diabetes is just the tip of an iceberg you know, I think it's something like 5 to 6% of New Zealanders have diabetes. Uh, the cost of that by 2040 is expected to be $35 billion. It's, it's a big problem, but that is honestly just the tip of the iceberg because there are many, many people sitting below that who have pre-diabetes. Right. Um, I I don't know the exact numbers for that, but many people with pre-diabetes, but that's still the tip of the iceberg because below that we have insulin resistance. And some studies I've seen from the United States say that 89% of American adults... Sorry, 89? 89% of American adults have some manifestation of insulin resistance. You know, so if we talk about that 5 to 6% of people with diabetes... I think we should, it's actually taking our eye off the ball, we should be talking about the 89% of people who have 
pre-pre-diabetes. And that's what I'm all about. I want to be able to say to someone, you have pre-pre-diabetes, let's do something about it now. Um, so let, just to put that into some actual numbers, we talk about HbA1c. Is, is that a term that's familiar to you, HbA1c? Uh, not off the top. No, so H, HbA1c is the diabetes measure. So 20 to 40 is normal. Right. 41 to 49 is pre-diabetes and 50 and above is diabetes. You know, so so that's what we're we're picking up. I love to pick up someone at 41, you know, and say we can turn that around. But there are many, many people that have a HbA1c of 41 that get told, let's just retest it in six months. You know, and, and to me, that's such a missed opportunity because that's when it's easiest to turn around. Right. You can get right in at that point, bottom yeah. floor of the building kind yeah. of thing. But even better, let's pick up the people with the insulin resistance, and we can do that very easily. So anyone that's having a blood test, I would be asking their doctor or discussing with their doctor a fasting insulin and a fasting C-peptide. Those two tests are effective at pricking up this pre-pre-diabetes, which is where I like to work. You know, be the fence at the top of the cliff, not the ambulance at the bottom. So those tests. And then also another really important test is lipids. You know, so everyone focuses on the cholesterol, but there's a line underneath that, underneath that called triglyceride. And on a fasting sample, the triglyceride is telling you the amount of fat that you are making from sugar and carbohydrates. So we should be doing our lipids fasting and we should be looking at fasting triglyceride and you want that really, really low. You do not want to be making fat from sugar and carbohydrates. Okay, that's good advice already. So what is insulin resistance? Yeah, okay. So what is insulin? So let's let's go back and we'll do the biochemistry really, really simply. Okay, so a carbohydrate, or let's go back even one more step. You've got food is made up of carbs, proteins, and fats. So if we think of a, a carb, we're thinking of a piece of bread. If we're thinking of protein, we're thinking of perhaps a piece of meat. And if we're thinking of fat, we're thinking of butter. Yeah, so, so that's carbs, fats, and proteins. If we look at the carbs, carbohydrates are sugar molecules that are strung together in a chain. And when you digest them, they become blood sugar. So one of the big points is that every carbohydrate, bread, rice, pasta, potato, kumra, cereal, they all become carbohydrates. So it's not just the teaspoon of sugar in the coffee. It's not just the Easter egg. It's all carbohydrates become blood sugar. And if you think about it, the body doesn't have any mechanism of reaching into the blood and going, oh, that one came from a healthy kumara, but that one came from an Easter egg. That one's good, that one's bad. Once it's blood sugar, it's all has to be dealt with. So what does the body do with excess blood sugar? It sends it to the liver and all excess blood sugar gets turned into fat. So carbohydrates become fat. And you had um, Gary Fickey uh, on the show uh, recently. Yep. Um, he's got the saying, he says, Sugar makes you hungry, carbs make you fat, and the vegetable oils make you sick and inflamed. So carbohydrates make you fat because all carbs become blood sugar, all blood sugar that's not used, stored, 
or used for energy will become fat. You know, so that's the thing. And what controls this? Insulin is what controls it. So think of Thomas the Tank Engine. Um, insulin is the fat controller. And uh, it's like a switch. If your blood sugar is high, then the insulin switch is flicked towards fat storage. But here's the miracle. If your blood sugar is low and your insulin drops, then you get flicked into fat burning. And fat burning is weight loss. So anyone who wants to lose weight, they have to drop their insulin level. And so what is insulin resistance? It's that when the levels of insulin are high all the time and the body just can't store any more fat. It's going, well, I'm full. You know, every one of my fat cells is full. My liver is full of fat and I just can't keep doing this. So insulin resistance is high levels of insulin, but the body just saying no more. And 89% of American adults are in that situation where they've started to decompensate. You know, the insulin is not doing its job fully anymore and people are storing fat. So they're getting fatter and they're getting more diabetic and their brains aren't working properly and their immune system's not working properly. You know, and if all of the conditions that we see in general practice are probably manifestations of insulin resistance. So most cancers, you know, this surprises people when I say this, but most cancers are a reflection of insulin resistance. Alzheimer's is a reflection of insulin resistance, Parkinson's disease, and interestingly, heart disease. Heart disease is also a manifestation of insulin resistance. So if we could stop insulin resistance, we would impact on all of those conditions and many, many more. And it's as simple as stop having sugar and dramatically reduce the carbohydrates and we will see a dramatic improvement in health. Like a miracle. And it is like a miracle. And I spend my day witnessing miracles. You know, I, I see people making these changes in their lives and I see their chronic conditions improving and also things that they don't expect to improve. You know, I, I hear people say, I sleep better. My menopausal help hot flushes have reduced. I have more energy. You didn't tell me to start exercising, but now I just want to. Um, I'm not hungry. You know, all of these things that people don't expect and they happen because you are changing your biochemistry. You know, this is not a diet. This is changing your biochemistry, changing the function of your cells, changing what the mitochondria do within your cells. This is biochemistry. This is not a diet. Yeah, just listening to you there, um, I'm wondering, obviously the human body has has evolved in a certain way and it's tuned differently to the modern, what you're talking about here. It's, it's no way we're near optimal under the conditions that you're talking about. And sits, sitting there as a default, which if it is allowed to come out, it's, it's kind of a completely different experience. Yeah, so uh, we use the term um, a genetic mismatch. So our food environment and our genetics are fighting each other. You know, we now have this obesogenic food environment with all this processed food with sugar crammed into it. Sugar and these industrial fats packaged into these 
highly processed, ultra-processed food. Well, I don't even know if you can call them food. You know, is something with an ingredient list 10 long, is it food or is it some manufactured concoction? Well, you know, it's like, like a description of a, of a lineup of, of molecular Yes. It's, it's, I, don't, I don't know. I, I think we should stop calling these things foods. You know, what is a food? You know, define a food. A, a food is something that our great-grandmother recognised, you know, so she'd recognise a spinach leaf and a carrot and a lamb chop, um, you know, all of those things, and water, you know, those things would be recognisable, but some of these, I don't know, um, if you left a, 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 um, I don't know, a ration, what are those orange, those yeah, orange? Yeah, yeah, another one, yeah, another one. On her bench, would she automatically pick it up and eat it? I suspect not. She'd be afraid of it. She'd go, what the hell is that? You know, so you should be able to recognise it as food. A good saying is something that was recently walking, flying, swimming, or growing. That's a really good definition of food. And these things with this long ingredient list, most of it is numbers, you know, just stay away from it. You know, that's not an ingredient list. That's a warning label. And, you know, like a chicken doesn't come with the warning label, you know, that. so why don't we just eat things? Best before. Warning label. <laughs> Best <laughs> right? before stamped on the chicken. Yeah. And that's yeah. what we're talking about. We're just talking about eating real food. You know, this is not complicated. This is, real food that our grandmother, great-grandmother might have served us. You know, it's for breakfast, um, having some eggs. It's for lunch, having a chicken salad. And it's for dinner, having a steak and broccoli and cauliflower. This is not complicated stuff. It's complicated biochemistry, but what you end up eating on a healthy, clean diet is not complicated. And it's probably um, competitively priced compared to all the processed stuff, certainly um, the um, fast food which is yeah. quite yeah, expensive. It's, it's a it's an interesting point you make because some people say I can't afford to eat keto, for example, because the cheapest food you can buy is white bread and two-minute noodles. You know, those are very, very cheap foods. A two-minute noodle sandwich. Well, there's actually the two-minute noodle index, which is an um, international index of poverty, because as poverty increases, the two-minute noodle consumption increases. So they actually use it as a as a poverty indicator, you know. So it is more expensive to buy fresh vegetables and a chicken than it is to buy two-minute noodles. But you're quite right. All of those convenience foods and chocolate biscuits and chippies and that that just adds up. It really does. Another really interesting thing is people stop eating six meals a day when you eat satiating food. You know, when you eat steak and vegetables, you're going to feel full until your next meal. When you eat a packet of chips, I can guarantee you're going to want to eat again two hours later, it doesn't keep you full. So instead of eating six times a day, a lot of our people that we see are eating twice a day because they feel full. They don't have to eat multiple meals a day. Yeah, I can vouch for that because I'm sort of eating in that way now too through a few of the issues I've had and, um, and, and, and being a bit more aware of things. And that's right. In fact, I can go on one meal a day quite happily now if I really had to. You know, before it was like snack, snack, snack. Um, keto, what, what does that mean? So we talk about 
a low carbohydrate, uh, healthy fat diet. And keto is just the more uh, advanced form of that. So with a ketogenic diet, you're getting your daily carbohydrates less than 20 grams per day. So for reference, one piece of bread is 15.15 grams of carbohydrate. So we're getting our daily carbohydrates down to less than 20. So it's quite... Some people eat a whole loaf a day. Yeah, I know. Um, many people are eating 200 or 300 grams of carbohydrates per day. And for a ketogenic diet, we're trying to get it less than 20. Now, so low carb is getting at less than 50. And I think every person, you know, probably over the age of 18 should be eating low carb, less than 50 grams. That's 5.0 grams per day. However, people with a health problem that they're trying to reverse probably need to get down to 20 and they need to in a ketogenic diet. What is a ketogenic diet? It is a diet that produces these miraculous molecules called ketones. And ketones are an alternative fuel source to glucose. Ketones, the brain loves ketones. Um, it fuels the brain. It creates um, energy and creative thought. Um, and you know that when you are producing ketones that your insulin is under control. It is impossible to produce ketones and have high insulin. See, now how I said 89% of American adults have insulin resistance. Any one of those producing ketones does not have insulin resistance. So as a doctor, I love my clients to be producing ketones because I know they've reversed their insulin resistance and they will be reversing all of those health conditions I, I mentioned and reducing the risk of heart attack and stroke and reducing their chance of cancer. So I love my clients showing me their little monitor that says their ketone levels are above 0.5 because I know they're making wonderful changes to their health. I'm speaking with Dr. Glenn Davies from Topol, and uh, he's part of a group called Reverse T2 um, Type 2 Diabetes. Topol, I love saying that word, Topol. You've got to, you've got to take it slow, though, to get it to sounding just right. And I'm just reading here, you say that over 115 community members have reversed their diabetes. And, um, you know, quite a few people are obviously interested that the social media following, following you have is reasonably large for that area. So... In terms of the um, percentage of your your patients, your clients who might be, and we're talking about high percentages of the population needing this kind of approach, how many is 115? And I'm wondering, I mean, you've kind of described how people feel afterwards, but they must be incredibly satisfied that they've had this problem sorted in this way. Yeah, Um you bring out the topic of empowerment, you know, um, the, the tallies now, I think at about 170 people that have reversed their diabetes oh, or pre-diabetes, cool. yep. but it's not me as a doctor that's done that to them. It's them that have acquired some knowledge and made all the changes themselves, that have done all the hard work themselves, that have been empowered, who have gone into their pantry and thrown out all the junk food and then gone to the supermarket and replaced it with healthy food, it's them that's had to say no to the Easter eggs. You know, it's it's them that have had to have the willpower and the self-control and the knowledge, you know. So although 
you know, that tally is, is, is cool to talk about. Each one of them are individuals that have made changes themselves and influenced their whanau and their workmates and their friends, you know, so they have become empowered. It's really interesting. I have to kind of hold them back a little bit because, you know, that um, reformed smoker thing, you know, where um, people even become a little bit evangelical. Yeah, like, yeah, be quiet, stop that. Okay, yeah, we get it, yeah. <laughs> I, uh, I need to say to people, you know, like, um, people need to be ready to hear this message. They need to have made those first steps themselves. Otherwise, people just um, get turned off, don't they? You know, so, so you know, they these people in the group have influenced many, many other people. They may not have had that degree of success but most have reduced their sugar con you know intake they you know they're eating more healthy which which is called the ripple effect or the butterfly effect hmm. do you get any pushback from you know the what do we call them the, the conventional practitioners who who do the prescribing and and really don't go any deeper than that um, do they cast you in any, any sort of light um, do they yeah. criticize do they what do they say I've I've been lucky, and I think it's all about um, timing, isn't it? You know, I've I've been lucky in my timing. I haven't actually been attacked for this because I think there's enough information out there in the community that this is, you know, knowledge. And most doctors are very comfortable with uh, lowering the carb message, but not many of them are comfortable with uh, increasing the healthy fats component. Because if you think about it, if you've lowered your carbs and you keep your protein the same you're going to end up on a calorie restricted diet which you don't need to be so you have to increase your healthy fats so deliberately having more olive oil deliberately eating more um, avocado um, you know deliberately increasing these fats and we've redefined what a healthy fat is you know it's it's not just your avocado and your olive oil and your coconut oil um, meat fat is, is healthy in the context of a low-carbohydrate diet. Uh, butter is definitely a better option than margarine. You know, so uh, we encourage people to choose um, fattier cuts of meat because it's the fat that keeps you satiated. satiated. But I would say in the context of a low-carbohydrate diet, what we do not want is the people to hear the high-fat message but maintain their sugar and... and oh, no, that'll be that's the worst of all worlds then, isn't it? That's called the, the SAD diet, the standard American diet or the standard Australian diet or the standard ATRO diet. That, that's shocking. That's, that's a no-go. We want low-carb, and in that context, you can increase your fat intake and you will end up with energy and health absolute. To burn. Okay, I want to get on to the heart before we, um, you know, um, end the chat. But first of all, um, while you're saying all this, there seems to be pushback or even a kind of war on meat. Yeah. Yes. Which now, in the co in context of what you're saying, doesn't make any sense. So what, what do you think about that? So, um. I'd love to tell you about my first meeting with a carnivore. Would, would that be okay? Oh, yeah, sure. Go. go. I didn't organise this talk, so I hadn't met this gentleman, um, but he had been complete carnivore for four years, and and I had never seen scurvy, um, which is vitamin C deficiency and um, swollen gums. and. Uh, there was sailing uh, ships and James Cook 
days, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. And I thought, this this man is going to have scurvy, whatever that looks like. And in fact, he was one of the healthiest people I'd ever seen in my life. He was 68 years old. He did 68 press-ups every morning. He just won the club championship at golf, and he wasn't happy with the utility of PowerPoint, so he'd integrated it with another program. So, and, and this man was lean, cut, with abs, sharp, funny. And we said to him, we went, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. You're saying to us that all you eat is a big slab of steak, one meal a day, and you're telling us that's all you eat. And he went, um, no, 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 of course not. And we all went, Shh. He said, sometimes I put butter on my steak. (laughs) So he, you know, carnivore, but I would say with carnivore, if that's something that you're thinking about, it's not just eating the steak, you need to be eating the organ meats as well. You know, so the the liver, the kidneys, the brains, the sweetbread, you know, they contain a lot of the vitamins. You know, if you think about what a lion eats when it kills an animal, it goes for the liver first. Um, if you watch a cat eat a mouse, it'll eat the head because it's after the brain. You know, you need the organ meats as well. So they but, all know, that's all wired into them. They know that, right? Yeah, yeah. And and it's the the bits that we eat that the lion will leave for the jackals. You know, so so make sure that you're consuming the organ meat. The other side of that is this animal has given up its life for our sustenance. I think it it's an honour to that animal that we try and consume as much of that animal as we can. Now, I know because I've seen your paper on the design, your design for a better health system, and I've read that. And, I mean, we've spent a lot of time on, you know, the the immediate information for people that is diabetes, heart, diet, all that sort of stuff. But I want to get you back soon, like within a few weeks, and talk about uh, maybe it'll be a sh- shorter chat, maybe not. Talk about how how we would build, in your vision, a better health system than we have now. I think that's a, a, a great time to talk about this. So if you're up for that, I am. I'd love that opportunity. I'm excited to come back. Thank you, Paul. To Paul, Dr. Glenn Davies. RCR with Paul Brennan. Reality Check Radio.